job. We thank you for that. Appreciate all the good singing that we've had tonight. I'd like you to take your Bibles now and open them to Revelation chapter 1. We're just getting started into this last book of the Bible, our study of this. And uh, last week I told you the message that I was preaching was the preview of the preview. And tonight I'm going to preach the preview message. There's some things that you just sort of had to get out of the way and get cleared up before you can actually get into the study of Revelation. So this evening my message is entitled, What's It All About? And that's a really big question, so I'm really going to narrow it down to what is Revelation all about? Donna tried to help me with this this week to figure that out, and she said, you do the hokey pokey and you turn yourself around, and that's what it's all about. <laughs> Apparently that answers a lot of questions for her. But for you, I'm going to try and uh, tell you what this book of Revelation is all about. So our text verse this evening is in Revelation chapter 1, verse number 19. This is what we have or would call the outline for the book of Revelation. So we're going to look at just this one verse tonight. Stand with me, please, as we read this. Revelation chapter 1, verse number 19. This is Jesus speaking. And he says, Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things that shall be hereafter. Heavenly Father, thank you for the time we have to come together. Help us, Lord, as we talk about your word tonight, and may we really see the true picture of what Revelation is all about. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. If you've ever taken a a Bible survey course, one of the things you do is you get an outline of what each of the book is about, each of the books are about. And in that outline, you learn the major themes of the book and you learn the purpose of the book. Well, Revelation is a book where we really have, right in the first chapter, the outline of the book. John wrote the Gospel of John, as I've talked to you about this morning. In chapter 20, he told us why the book was written. He said, I wrote all of these things down, and I recorded these miracles of Jesus, that you would know that Jesus truly is the Son of God, and that if you believe in him, you'll have life through his name. So you had to go... uh, 20 chapters to get to that statement of John. So book, uh, chapter after chapter, verse after verse, which should get you to that statement where John says, well, if you believe in these miracles, if you believe what Jesus did, you can have life in his name. Well, when we come to Revelation, John, of course, is also the author of this book, and he gives us the purpose for the writing of it right here in the very first chapter. So we want to talk about that first tonight. That's the purpose of Revelation. It's not often that you would find the outline for a New Testament book right in the first chapter, but that's what we have in verse 19. And this purpose was given to John by none other than the one who is the subject of the entire book. So the resurrected Christ appeared to John, and he tells him, he says, Now, I want you to do this. I want you to write the things that you have seen, then write the things which are, and then the things that are coming afterward. And that's exactly what you get in the book. In chapter 1, you get the things that John saw. Chapters 2 and 3 are about things that are. And then chapters 4 through 22 are things that are going to happen afterwards. So that's the outline of the book. So if you want to make a notation in your Bible, right right there next to verse number 19, write outline for Revelation. Now I'm going to explain to you, first of all this evening, uh, a little bit about that outline. First, John is told to write what he saw. Jesus says, write the things which thou hast seen. Well, that's a past tense expression, and John's told to write down what he had just seen. Well, what's that all about? 
Well, what John had just seen was a vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, who was John's friend and one that John conversed with and talked with or talked with and, and one that he traveled with, that he learned from Jesus Christ during those three years of Jesus' public ministry. This is the one who appeared to John. John was a, an old man by this time, probably somewhere in his late 80s or even 90 years old and beyond, and it had been 60 years since John had actually talked with Jesus. But John's faith wasn't deterred by that, not by the time that it passed. He was still strong in the faith. He was enduring exile at that time and persecution. But this is the first time that he'd seen Jesus since he saw him in his resurrected body. And this time, when John sees Jesus... He's not the same as he was before. It's evident that this is not the same Jesus that he saw immediately after the resurrection. Now, I don't mean it wasn't the same Jesus who was the person Jesus, but he saw him in a much different way. He saw him at the Lord Jesus Christ in his majesty. Now, John, or rather Jesus, I should say, uh, appeared to the disciples. And if you remember, John was there among them. And they saw Jesus uh, in a little bit different way than we see him right here. And actually, in Revelation chapter 1, we have the only real description of Jesus that's in in the entire Bible. Now, lots of pictures have been made supposedly of Jesus, and somebody has an idea, they think of what Jesus looked like, and I strongly suspect that Jesus did not have an appearance in the physical body, anything like the picture showed of him. But here is really the only description that we have of Jesus in the Bible. And it's not the way that he appeared to the disciples right after the resurrection. So we're going to see that description of Jesus. We'll get to that in a later sermon. But that's what John saw. And Jesus said to write down what you saw. And so he was there on a Sunday morning. He was in deep meditation and and prayer, I believe. And he heard this voice that was behind him. And he saw the glorified Christ. He saw Jesus in his majesty. And he appeared quite differently than we might imagine. So the first division of the book is a rather short one. It's the first chapter, and John writes about what he saw. Then the next division of the book is what John sees. John's told to write down what he sees, and that's in chapters 2 and 3. And what he sees are the things that are happening now. And let me just say about this, that the things that are happening now are what happens during the entire period of the church age. That's from the very time that Jesus left the earth in the resurrection and then when, uh, uh, when he comes back again in the second coming. All of that time that takes place from the time that Jesus ascended all the way until he comes back again, that is what's happening now. But as we think about what's happening now when John sees it, John is actually writing to seven, seven literal churches that are there in Asia. And this, these uh, different things that John is told to write, he's told to write to those particular seven churches. Now, tonight's message, as I've told you, is just a preview. But I would like to point out that chapters 2 and 3, I believe, are representative of all churches in all ages. And that's until the time that Jesus comes back. So they are actual churches that existed in the time of John, but it also covers the whole period of time of church history from the time that Jesus was ascended until he comes back again. So we have all these eras of church history that's, that's comprehended in that. And I believe that the Bible very clearly teases, teaches that the church of Jesus Christ is not going to go out of existence. Not until Jesus comes back, 
will the church ever go out of existence. So it's always going to be here. And so when Jesus comes in the rapture, then the church is going to end. But one thing that he never promised is, he never promised that any one local congregation would survive. And in fact, none of those seven churches of Asia is in existence today. And God hasn't promised that Berean Baptist Church is going to be around for all time. But one thing we do know, we must be faithful to the Lord. And I believe if we are, then God will preserve us. So somewhere uh, uh, in the earth, in all ages, until the rapture uh, comes, there will be true churches. And whether those churches are few or whether they're many... Jesus will have his representative churches of that great institution that he founded during his ministry. So what John sees in chapters 2 and 3 are for churches in his day, but it's also for the present age. And what John sees, I believe, are only a few good churches and very, very many churches that have problems. And some of those churches, I think, just like the ones that are mentioned in Revelation, are threatened with retribution unless they repent and change some of their practices. So I think it's helpful for all of us to understand that the one who sees us all is watching us, Jesus Christ, who is the founder of the church and the preserver of the church. He sees everything that we're doing. He knows the doctrines that we're preaching. He knows whether we're uh, staying true to his word. And this mighty Christ, the one that John sees in chapter 1, has his watchful eye on us all the time. We ought to remember this. Being a member of a New Testament church is a blessed privilege. And if there's any institution on the face of the earth that you should not take lightly, it's the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what John sees then in the Revelation is a, is a history of the church. And he sees doctrinal errors that have crept in as he writes this. And he also sees the Lord's response to those errors. And he sees churches that have been faithful. And he also sees churches that have become self-consumed and very worldly. What we find in chapters 2 and 3, whenever you preach on Revelation, this is, this is a place where people kind of fall out in the study. I mean, they love to come to hear about the futuristic events and all these things that are supposed to happen but they don't like what's happening in the present. And what I mean by that, when the preacher gets up to preach on these seven churches of Asia, he's going to have to get in some problems that churches have. He's going to have to step on a few toes. And many people like to hear about all those things way off in the future, and they don't like anybody hammering on their toes right now. But that's going to happen in the book of Revelation as we look at chapters 2 and 3. So that's the second division of the book. John's writing about things that are happening now. And whether you would have read this a hundred years ago or whether you read it a hundred years in the future, he's still talking about things that are happening in the church age. That's what we call the elasticity of the Bible. And that simply means that the Bible is always relevant. We're never to think of the Bible as an old-fashioned book because God has given us a book that's always relevant to our time. Now, thirdly, there's another division and uh, this is the third thing that John's told to write, what John will see. So these are things that are going to take place later. These are things that happen in the future, and, that, and that's after the church is gone. Now, we're going to come uh, uh, to some things here under the next heading where we'll talk about it a little bit more. But I do believe that the book of Revelation is to be interpreted as a book about things that will happen. And we are not living now, nor have we ever lived, 
many of the things that we're going to read about in the book of Revelation. So these are things that are going to happen after the church age. So there's things that are going to take place when Jesus comes back because the world doesn't end at the rapture. There's some things that are going to happen, and some of those things that are written about are terrible things. They're awful things. And uh, you want to be a Christian because you don't want to go through many of the things that are written about in this book. So you don't want to be a part of that. There are seven principal things that are coming in the future that Revelation speaks of. Seven specific future events. Now let's talk about those for just a minute. Seven prophetic events. Chapter 3 is the end of the church age, and then things start to happen immediately after the rapture. So the third division of the book, or the third point in the outline, is things that take place after the rapture. But of course you have to do this, you have to get to the rapture. So the first thing on God's prophetic calendar that's coming up is the rapture of God's people. Now Revelation doesn't talk specifically about the rapture. But we do know this, the rapture occurred because at the end of chapter 3 and going into chapter 4, you don't read anything at all anymore about the church. And so you know that the rapture has happened. So there are events that are coming. So this is a preview of Revelation, and so I promise you that when we get to that point, we're going to talk about the rapture. The second thing that comes is the tribulation. That happens right after the rapture. And when Jesus comes to take all the saints back home then the world enters into a seven-year period of, of tribulation. And many of the events, as I said a moment ago, are going to happen. Uh, these terrible things are going to happen during that seven years of tribulation. But if you're a Christian, if you're saved, at the time that Jesus comes back, if you are a true believer in him, you're not going to be around to experience all the things that happen in the tribulation. If you're saved, you'll be taken out of this world. So at the beginning of the tribulation, at least at the very beginning of it, there are no saved people that are in the world. We do believe that there will be millions of people, perhaps, who will be saved during the tribulation. But during that time period, when it first starts out, all the Christians are taken out of the world. Now, I want to say something as a word of caution to anybody that's here tonight or anybody that might be listening on the Internet or hears a CD of this later. You don't want to wait until Jesus comes back. Now, there's some people who think, well, that's all fantastic, all of these things that you're talking about. And so when Jesus comes, when when all this starts to take place, then I'm going to trust him. I'll believe in him. But I think we have indications in the Bible that if you've heard the gospel of Jesus Christ before he comes back, I don't think that you're going to believe it afterwards. And so the thing to do is to believe in Jesus right now. I don't think that you're going to trust Jesus later. So here's the thing about it. Just by the fact that you've heard me make this statement tonight, your doom is sealed if you don't believe in Jesus Christ. I've told you that he's coming back. And so you don't want to be here when he does if you're not a Christian. The third thing that's going to happen right after or in the tribulation, the next prophetic prophetic event, is the battle of Armageddon. There's a lot of talk about Armageddon. Every time that there's a catastrophe that happens anywhere in the world, somebody seems to be making references to Armageddon, that Armageddon has come. Well, in the tribulation time, near the end of it, or at the end of it, there's this great battle that's called the Battle of Armageddon. And this is a battle that takes place between the forces, the armies of the Antichrist, and the armies of the Lord's Christ. Tonight's a preview, and so I'm not going to tell you who wins the battle. You just have to make a wild guess and try to figure that one out. 
Number four, the fourth thing that's going to happen is the judgment seat of Christ. The judgment seat of Christ is the time of judgment for all Christians. And the Bible does teach that all of us as the people of God, we're going to stand before uh, Jesus Christ in the judgment. This is a judgment where only Christians will be there. And I believe that this judgment takes place at or near the end of the tribulation period. The fifth thing that's coming is the millennium. And the millennium simply means a time when Jesus comes to reign on the earth in a literal kingdom for 1,000 years. And the Bible teaches that, that this uh, kingdom that Christ rules in, he'll rule it with a rod of iron. Now, I'll just give you a little hint about this up front, what, what my view of the millennium is. I really don't believe that there's anybody going to be saved during the millennial period. Christ is going to rule with the reign of rod of iron, and all the people in the world at that time that, uh, that are living then are going to be lost people, and they are not going to enjoy the reign of Jesus Christ. He's not going to permit a lot of things that go on in the world today. During that time, the kingdom is going to be restored to Israel And Jesus is going to rule and reign from the throne of David in Jerusalem. The sixth thing that happens is the great white throne judgment. That's the time for the judgment of all the lost. And every person who appears in that judgment, they are going to be cast into the lake of eternal fire to be punished forever. And contrary to what many churches teach today, we still very much do believe that there is a literal fire that people are going to be cast into when they don't, if they don't believe in Jesus Christ. Many evangelists today won't preach that. Billy Graham doesn't preach it anymore. But there is a literal burning fire for people that are lost. Then the seventh thing that will happen is that there's coming a new earth and a new Jerusalem. This old earth with the curse is going to be burned up. It'll be completely renovated. It'll be made habitable for the saints of God And then God is also going to create a new Jerusalem. And I believe that's the place where the the faithful members of the Lord's church are going to live in that new Jerusalem. So there are seven great events that are going to come. And John writes about these things that will come hereafter. So we have then the book of Revelation conveniently outlined into these three areas. Things that are in the past, things that are in the present, and things that are coming in the future. Now, the second thing we want to talk about tonight is the prophecy of Revelation. To many people, Revelation is a very confusing book. And when you read the interpretations that some people put on the book of Revelation, it becomes even more confusing. Revelation is not intended for us to to be such a mystery that you can't find out what it it really means. And so people ask, is this really a book about uh, prophecy? Are the things that we read in Revelation, are these literal things? Or are they, are they to be taken figuratively? How are we supposed to interpret the book of Revelation? Well, there are actually four major schemes of interpretation. I don't have time to go into detail about them. But there are four different ways that people interpret the book of Revelation. And under those interpretations, there's a lot of different subpoints of interpretation. So we can't possibly go into all of that. But let me briefly outline for you four ways that people look at the book of Revelation. The first one is the spiritual scheme of interpretation. And those who spiritualize the book of Revelation, they say, well, this book was written simply for the reason of of, uh, conveying to us certain fundamental spiritual principles. So nothing that we read about in the book is actually literal. All of these things are allegorized. 
And what we're supposed to do is take the things that are written and apply them to certain values in our life and uh, learn lessons from it. And so there's really no prophecy in the book at all. There's no history in this book. So everything is actually a myth, and what it's done is to teach us certain worthy principles. Now, in my opinion, people who interpret Revelation like that might as well call it Aesop's Fables, because every little fable has a life story or a good story to tell at the end. And so that's how they interpret the book. They just want to spiritualize everything. The, the second method of interpretation is the preterist scheme of interpretation. And these are people who believe that everything that John wrote was about events that were happening in his time. So Revelation then would actually be an historical record of the things that happened in John's time. So everything that we read about here, it's all already happened. Well, the problem with that is it ignores a very fundamental statement that's made in chapter 1, verse number 3, where the book itself says it is a book of prophecy. So people who believe in this particular uh, idea, they, they think that even the second coming of Christ, Jesus was just really referring to something that happened way back in 70 A.D. For example, things that happened when Jerusalem was destroyed, restore, uh, destroyed and, and the temple was destroyed. So they look at it simply as an historical record, something that's already happened. Then you have the third scheme, and this one's actually called the historical scheme of interpretation, You might wonder, well, why isn't the other one called that? Well, that's a good question. But this one is called the historical scheme. And these are people people that, that allegorize also the book of Revelation to mean that everything that's written here is about the, about the church age. It's all about the church and things that are happening in, it, happening in the church until Jesus comes again. So uh, looking at it that way, the, you have groups that are the uh, amillenarians and the postmillenarians, and they do not believe that there is a literal reign of Jesus Christ upon the earth where the kingdom is going to be restored to Israel and Jesus will rule in that kingdom. So amillenarians believe that right now we're actually living in the, in the reign of Christ. In the thousand years is just a figurative term. Postmillenarians believe that the world is actually going to come to the place where it can be conquered by the gospel. In the very end, the gospel of Jesus Christ is going to permeate the entire earth, and then that's when the end comes. So, so you have problems with that. And, and the major problem that you have with this interpretation is that it lends itself to literally hundreds of different ideas about what revelation could mean. And so depending upon what time that you live in, what era of, of the church age, whether it was a thousand years ago or 500 years ago, whatever it might be, you're left with trying to figure out how all of these different events that are happening in Revelation and, and uh, things that John writes about there, how all those are uh, fit in to the time that you live in. And, and how do you interpret these many different things and what's happening and what does John mean by those things? Well, what happens is you end up with literally hundreds upon hundreds of interpretations of everything that you have in the book. And so the book doesn't actually become a book of meaning. It becomes a book with no meaning. And even the people that John wrote to in that very time, they would have had absolutely no clue whatsoever what John was talking about. So we really can't take the historical interpretation. So what we do then is we take this last one, we take a futurist scheme of interpretation. And that's the one that clears everything up. 
And that method of interpretation is just what I described you to, to you a moment ago. The major portion of the book then would be about prophecy. And chapters 4 through 22 are talking about things that are going to happen in the future. And so that's speaking about things after Jesus comes again. And so if you take the book of Revelation in a, in a normal hermeneutical way, like you would the rest of the Bible, then you'd come to that conclusion because it's the very best thing that, that describes what's going to happen. It must be prophecy. Well, the futurist scheme does not demand that we allegorize things. And we don't have to take everything in Revelation as an allegory. There are certain things that, that actually will happen. They are literal. We can believe that they're going to happen. And then when the text demands that something is a symbol, usually it will tell us what that symbol is. So we take a futurist scheme and a literal approach. And also with this, we have fewer variables about what the book of Revelation can be about. And so people who interpret the book in a futuristic way, usually they are in agreement on the major portions of the book. So we're pretty much in agreement all across the board, those that take a futuristic interpretation of it, rather than trying to jumble all these different things up. Now, the finer points, the sub-interpretations and so forth, that might be a little bit different, but we, we, we have much less complication than you do in amillennialism and post-millennialism. So that's the way we're going to interpret the book. This is a book about prophecy. John saw into the future, and so he saw some things that you and I as believers that we have to look forward to. And certainly there are some things here that if you're lost and not a believer in Jesus Christ, that you have certainly something to dread. Now, thirdly, I want to talk to you for a few minutes about the person of Revelation. And here's the place where a lot of people get stuck. They get all fired up about this, that Revelation is a book about future events. And so they charge into the book of Revelation like a bull in a china shop. And they're going to figure out all these things are going to happen in the future. Revelation is not written for the purpose simply of telling you about the future. The purpose is to tell us about the central figure of Revelation. So it's called the Revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not the revelation of the tribulation, and it's not the revelation of the millennium. It's not the revelation of utopia. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's the central figure. And if all, and all the hoopla about the future, if you miss the central figure of Revelation, then you've missed the whole purpose of, of this book. So the picture is of Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus Christ? How does he present himself here? And we find out that he's a little bit different than what we saw in the gospel accounts. You're a Christian here tonight. You're probably used to thinking of Jesus as a suffering Savior. We talked about the gospel today in the, in the morning message. And that's how Christ died for our sins, how he was buried, and how he arose from the grave. And so, in preaching of the gospel, we often get into the horrible suffering that Jesus went through. The, the punishment that he took for our sins. But... The book of Revelation is to present to us something a little bit different. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28, it says, So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. And what that verse really means is that when Jesus comes the second time, he comes without a sin offering. When it says he's going to appear without sin, that means he's not coming with a sin offering. 
And the salvation that it talks about there is not salvation by grace through faith, not in that particular instance, but it's talking about the final deliverance that God's people are going to have from this awful cursed world that we live in. And so when Jesus comes the second time, there's not going to be a cross for him. He's coming here as a conquering king, and he comes back to take his people home to be with him. So this is a preview. Remember, it's just a preview. But let me talk to you just a, just a minute here about the Christ of Revelation. Some ways that John presents him. Now, first of all, we see him in Revelation as the Lamb of God. He is seen as the Lamb of God. Did you know that there are only two places in the New Testament besides the writing of John where Jesus is referred to as a Lamb? Those two places are actually quotations of Old Testament verses. So John is the one who peculiarly presents Jesus as the Lamb. Twenty-four times in in Revelation, he talks about Jesus being the Lamb. But when he comes back again, he's not that suffering Lamb that we talked about a moment ago. He's going to be a super Lamb because Revelation also presents him as the Lion of Judah. Now, there's a great reference to that in, in Revelation 5, verse 5. And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. When the Bible talks about Jesus being the lion, it means the preeminence of Jesus as a king. Jesus came from the tribe of Judah, which is the tribe of kings. And Jesus is the most powerful, the most spectacular, the most majestic king that ever came out of the tribe of Judah. There's an interesting thing that John says about him in that verse. It says that he is the offspring of David. Actually, Jesus came as, the, as a uh, descendant of David. But here it says that he's also the root of David. Now, that's a peculiar expression because what that means is is that Jesus not only came after David, he's not only the offspring of David, but Jesus was really before David. And that's a statement about his pre-existence, the fact that he is eternal God. And that's a wonderful thing that we see about Jesus. Out of all the kings that ever came upon the earth, Jesus is the most majestic and greatest of all. And when he comes back, he will be that conquering king, and he'll be the judge of all people. A third picture that John presents of Jesus in the book is that he's the leader of his army. I know you're all familiar with this scripture, but it's in Revelation chapter 19, starting in verse 11. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture, dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress and the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. We're going to talk about that as we get into Revelation. And we're going to find out that not only is Jesus a merciful, compassionate, and a gracious Savior, but he's also a vengeful and wrathful king. And when he comes back, the time for mercy will end. Now, folks, I believe that the time of Christ's coming is soon. 
And we need to be looking for it. And one of these days, the mercy and the grace of Jesus will be expended, will all be done for all the people that are lost upon the earth. And so what we need to do, what every person needs to do, is trust Jesus Christ right now because the end is coming. Well, that brings me to the last picture that we have of Jesus. There, there are others that are in the book, but we'll, we'll, we'll stop with this one. He's also the Lord of all. In him is vested power to control everything that's ever been created. When Jesus created the world, of course, he was ruler over everything. He had control of all things. But he allowed Satan to usurp his authority. He allowed Satan to have some say in this world. And so for all these many years since the world has been created, Satan has usurped that power and authority of Jesus Christ. But it was prophesied way back in the Garden of Eden that Jesus would crush the head of that serpent that has usurped his authority. And so we find in Revelation the the re-emergence of Christ's lordship and his control over all things. And this is going to happen in two stages, actually. In Revelation 20, verse 2, it says, And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil, and Satan, and bound him a thousand years. So the serpent in Genesis 3.15 now has the Lord Jesus Christ standing on his neck. And with the ease of a man holding down an ant, he binds Satan up and he casts him into the bottomless pit. And he leaves him there for a thousand years. But then after that thousand years are over, he looses Satan. He has the power to do that and he lets him out on the earth again. And then he comes to deliver the crushing blow. And we find that in Revelation 20, verse 10. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. And so there we find Jesus Christ destroying the God of this world. The one who afflicted us for all of these years is now thrown into his final place where he's going to suffer in hell for all of eternity. Now, the book of Philippians tells us about Jesus becoming the Lord of all. And it says, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in the earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So if you want to know what it's all about, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's all about him. What's it all about? It's all about him. And so as we study the book of Revelation, what are we going to talk about? We're going to talk about him because that's what it's all about. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time we've had to be together tonight. Lord, as we're just looking at all these preliminary things that get us into the study, uh, I just pray, Lord, that you would make this profitable for us. And we know it will be because you promised that in the very first chapter You said if we study these things, we'll be blessed by them. So any time that we learn more about you, we know that we're going to be blessed. So prepare us, Lord, as we go in these next months into the study. Help us to learn more of your word and see a better picture of Jesus Christ and all of his majesty. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.